This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds, it was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Welcome to the MLK Tapes, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the podcast author or individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Tenderfoot TV, or their employees. Listener discretion is advised. Mr. Larson. Yes, sir. William Pepper, I'm calling you from London. Good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? Uh, you're about 20 minutes from going to court, I guess, are you? I am. Yes, sir. I got a couple of hearings over there this morning. Right. Uh, I have a client who has imparted some information to me, and he assures me that he can back up everything he has told me that, quite frankly, could prove that James Earl Ray did not shoot Dr. King, and I think could probably prove who actually did it. I called the Union Hall. I said, it's a matter of life and death. I said, I think these people are planning to kill Dr. King. The authorities would parade, oh, we found a gun that James Earl Ray bought in Birmingham that killed Dr. King, except it wasn't the gun that killed Dr. King. James Earl Ray was a pawn for the official story. From iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The plan was to get King to the city because they wanted it handled in Memphis where Daddy and them could handle it. And I've lived with it so long, my children, they, they scared for me. The Lord told me to not to worry. I've been wanting to tell it all my life. I'm Bill Kleber, and this is The MLK Tapes. I'm sitting with Bill Pepper in his cluttered study, listening to a phone conversation that Bill had recorded in 1998. I found the unlabeled cassette in a box with others that Bill had stashed at the King Center in Atlanta. A hundred tapes, 90 minutes each, I was doing triage. I was about to set this tape aside because it was just ordinary phone calls. But then some lawyer comes on and tells Bill that he is a client who, 30 years after the fact, can prove that James Earl Ray did not shoot Martin Luther King, the very thing that Pepper had been trying to prove for 20 years. That, of course, is very exciting. Uh, He's not in the best of hell, and he said, quite frankly, he believes that the King family deserves to know what actually happened. Uh, he has known Mr. Ray 
for many years. Apparently they at one time were in prison together in southeast Missouri when they were both young. Uh, and I'll be quite honest with you, he could care less about James Earl Ray. You know, he thinks the Kings deserve to know what happened. And that's why he has come forward. If you're Bill Pepper, you get phone calls like this every once in a while. People who know things reach out, often as they approach the end of their lives. I was fascinated by what I heard on this tape, and Bill had agreed to sit and listen to it with me. So that's what we're doing in a study, and at times you can hear the Harlem street noise from below. So, Bill, you're living in England, and you get a call from this guy, Attorney Larson, and uh, you call him back, and he spins you this tale. Um... What do you think about that? What was your initial reaction? Well, my initial reaction was uh, of interest. I had an open mind with respect to witnesses, potential witnesses coming forward. And here was a guy who was represented, represented himself as to be a lawyer, seemed to be a lawyer. So I was interested in uh, opening that door and having a conversation. Why would Bill Pepper say that this man on the phone represented himself to be a lawyer? It's an odd way to put it. The answer is because over the years, Pepper has been approached by a few people who were not who they said they were or otherwise offered false information. Bill did agree that this Mr. Larson seemed on the up and up, but there was still the matter of the client. Was he for real? Mr. Larson said he was. He worked for the federal government for many years. He did uh, considerable undercover work, a lot of it through, my understanding, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Shelby County, down in Memphis. Is that right? Yes, sir. And have you known this uh, client, Mr. Larson, for quite a period of time? I have known him for probably seven or eight years. He has several business operations in Tennessee, and I have done work for them. And quite honestly, was stunned when he called and said, I need to visit with you. Uh, I had no idea that he had the involvement that he did. I see. And have you found him to be a reliable person? If he were to tell me that it was going to snow on the 4th of July, I would probably laugh, but I'd get a coat, just in case. I see. That's, well, that's pretty impressive. Uh, now, does he say that he has ever met me at, uh, at any time? No, sir. He did testify several years ago. Uh, in executive session, the, subcommittee the, on this. The Congressional Committee, yes? Yes, sir. He did testify. He testified in executive session. Apparently, he and Mr. Stokes did not hit it off immediately, and I'm sure that will come as no great shock to you. Attorney Larson has just dropped a bomb. He said his client had been called to testify before the House Subcommittee on Assassinations a full 20 years earlier. Not just anybody gets called before the HSCA. An executive session was reserved for people who had things to say that would be kept secret for 50 years. So who was this guy? Bill Pepper didn't know. At this point, he didn't know the guy's name. Back to the phone call. He's a, he's a white uh, southerner? Yes, sir. He is from southeast Missouri. Now lives in another state, but I am in contact with him. How do you suggest we proceed, Mr. Larson? I mean, I certainly would like in your presence to um, to meet uh, with your client. Does he have any 
any concern about his own situation in terms of prosecution or anything of that sort? Some, but not, not a whole bunch, because basically his knowledge came after the fact. Yeah. I mean, he is not extraordinarily concerned about it, although he is well aware that it's possible right. because of all the other things that have transpired in this case. Uh, what he had suggested to me, and I'll throw this out to you, he had suggested perhaps if there was some interest in talking with him, everyone meeting in Atlanta, perhaps at the King Museum, and he could then basically explain to the son is what, Dexter? Yes. Uh, okay, that's a, that's, a, that's a good starting point suggestion. I think the center is probably too high profile. Okay. And I think, uh, but I think the idea of having Dexter there is a very good one. I, I very much like to have you present if that's if that's if you don't object to that and if that's. Uh, no, I, I think I think my client would prefer that also. Is it his wish that we meet entirely outside of Tennessee? I mean, would would Nashville be a possibility for? Uh, I think Nashville would be a possibility. Yeah. Well, would he mind our recording this session? I don't he, believe so. I'll clarify that with him. Okay. But I certainly would expect you to do that, quite frankly. Well, we would like to do that. We'll give you a copy. Is information, Mr. Larson, uh, such that it could be uh, it, it could be produced in court uh, if he were willing to do that, or is it a portion of it would be admissible? There would be some that I think would be uh, perhaps hearsay. Yeah. But the circumstances I found to be somewhat chilling. And, and what what troubled me, especially as I grew up down in Memphis, right. and I was in high school when the murder occurred, right. and I remember the cast of characters and all of a sudden the names were coming back. Right. So I, based on that, I, I think that there's, there's something there. Well, listen, I, I do thank you very much, um, and uh, please tell your client I'm, I'm very grateful to him at the, okay. this late point in his life for coming forward. Does he wish that his name not be known to me or Dexter prior to uh, any meeting that we have? Uh, yes, sir. He would prefer not to okay. have that done just yet. That's fine. That's entirely fine. And uh, are your <coughs> telephone lines uh, secure? Yes, sir. Okay. As far as I know. I have. Well, I have your number. You don't even need to leave that. You can just say it's Rusty calling. Okay. And uh, but I will come back to you. Uh, uh, fairly quickly. Uh, I, I look forward to meeting you and, and your client, and I'm sure Dexter will as well. All right, sir. I thank you very much. My pleasure. Look forward to meeting you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Bye-bye. When we were listening to this tape, neither Bill Pepper nor I knew if the lawyer or his client were still alive. And when Bill hung up the phone on the original call, he didn't even know the name of the guy, the one with this new information. But we know it now. His name was Green, Jim Green. According to his story, Green had led a life of crime when he was young and spent time in prison more than once. Then he served some years with law enforcement, after which he opened a couple of topless bars. But he was just 21 when he says he was picked, or more or less told, to kill James Earl Ray. According to Green, whose voice we will hear right now, he didn't know that Dr. King was to be murdered. I'm being told that he double-crossed some people and took their money. 
That may have been difficult to hear, as the recording of this phone conversation between Jim Green and Bill Pepper is of poor quality. Jim Green said, I've been told that he, referring to James Earl Ray, double-crossed some people and took their money. Now here's the rest of that statement from the call's transcript, as read by a voice actor. They knew that Ray was going to perform a robbery in Memphis. We were going to kill him after the robbery. We don't even know King is in town, as far as we're concerned. We're told that when he turns the corner, that if the policemen don't get him, I get him. I was the backup shooter, and the cop was late. And then Ray turned and walked the other way, where I couldn't get him. Jim Green died about 10 years ago, but as you just heard, we have a tape of him talking to Bill Pepper, and we will play that tape in a bit. But Green's lawyer, Rusty Larson, the man you heard on the phone with Bill, is very much alive and still practicing law in Jackson, Tennessee. We contacted Larson and asked if he would tell us what he knew of Jim Green and the plan to murder Ray. We'll hear from Larson after the break. Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. LifeLock monitors and alerts you to identity threats you may miss on your own, even if you're careful with your personal information. And if you do become the victim of tax-related identity fraud, LifeLock has U.S.-based restoration specialists ready to help solve your identity theft issues. Plus, all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package, meaning LifeLock will reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Let LifeLock help you protect your financial information so all you have to worry about is what to do with your tax refund. Go to LifeLock.com iHeart and save up to 25% your first year. That's 25% off at LifeLock.com iHeart. Identity theft protection starts here. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Uh, Attorney Larson. Yes, sir. Bill Kleber here. Yes, sir. How are you, Bill? Good, good. How you doing? I'm doing good. Did, did our uh, engineer arrive? He has gotten here and he has more equipment than you can say grace over. I'm at home in upstate New York, and attorney Russell Larson, better known as Rusty Larson, is sitting in his law office in Jackson, Tennessee, where he has practiced law for 40 years. 
Larson grew up in South Memphis in an area called, fittingly, Whitehaven. And he was a junior in high school when King was shot. I asked him if he was aware of the desperate, deepening divide in his city. Of course, I was aware of the sanitation strike, because that had gone on for quite a while. My dad, being in the restaurant business, was adversely affected by that. But, you know, it was just business as usual, basically, in my world. But business as usual was about to change in Memphis. When Dr. King was shot, the National Guard troops came in and downtown Memphis got shut down. And it got a little scary at that point. First time I had ever been around or had much exposure to armed military people with real live guns. Kind of a coming of age time. Larson went to college and got his law degree at Memphis State. Upon graduation, he landed a job with an appellate judge in Jackson, just an hour and a half up the road from Memphis. A few years later, he went out on his own as a criminal defense attorney, which is the work he has done ever since. I asked Larson how this led to Jim Green. Mr. Green opened a adult entertainment establishment here called The Dollhouse. And needless to say, when the, the topless bar came to town with scantily clad women dancing, it upset a lot of folks. And the police department tried to shut them down. I was hired by Jim Green to represent them. And we danced off to federal court. And all of a sudden, we had a federal judge who understood that Dancing was really speech, and it was protected by the Constitution. And so that's how I got involved with Jim and some of his operations. He often would come to town and would drop in the office, and we would talk for hours at a time because Jim had plenty of stories to tell. What kind of stories? Scary ones about his life of crime and then his life in law enforcement things that Green had seen or done, and enough that Green himself began to write them down for a book he hoped to publish. The unfinished manuscript was titled Blood and Dishonor, and it was his account of his life on both sides of the law and his role in the murder of Martin Luther King. The book had been kept in a safe by attorney Larson, who was kind enough to copy its pages and send them to me. With an associate reading for us, the book begins this way. I was raised in Carothersville, Missouri, on the west bank of the Mississippi. The town had bars, whorehouses, drugs, gambling, and about one killing a week. If you wanted anything, all you had to do was ask. But even in a town like that, people lived normal lives. I played baseball and football. You might ask, how could I be that normal and end up doing all the things I did? It was easy. Look at what was around me. As he tells it, Jim Green was 14 the first time he was put in jail. He had driven someone's truck from Tennessee to Florida to see a girl. When the cops pulled him over, they found a kid without a license. While they were still in high school, Jim and his friend Butch started running moonshine from Missouri into Tennessee and Alabama. They made good money. They also got busted a bunch of times. According to attorney Larson. Jim was very young when, when all this was taking place. I know that his career started when he was, was pretty young. 
maybe even as a juvenile, and then he graduated to adult facilities. So he had spent some time behind bars, and he knew the, the routines. And his personality was such that he had a great way of asking questions and getting people to talk to him. Inside the walls, you had punks, snitches, the ones who ran the drugs, the money, and finally the guards that thought they were cons. This is where my education really began, or should I say where I found out what the world was really made of. Prison is a world with rules of its own. You either abide by the con rules or die. That's how simple it is. One of the people Green met in prison was a fellow named James Earl Ray. Green remembers him as a quiet guy who worked in the kitchen. That was about it. They weren't friends or anything. But Green thinks that his knowing Ray, however casually, was a reason he was picked for the job of killing him, because Green knew what Ray looked like. I asked Larson how he found out about Green's involvement in the killing of King. I got the impression that Jim just needed to talk to somebody who didn't know a lot of the people that Jim knew. You know, sometimes you just need to talk to somebody, and and if it's somebody that has a confidentiality situation, that you're semi-safe in talking and getting things off your chest. And I got the impression that there were a lot of ghosts that Jim was dealing with, When he reached out to Larson, Green was at a place in his life where he no longer wanted to carry his and everybody else's secrets about the murder of Dr. King. And both he and attorney Larson thought that Bill Pepper was the person to talk to. So they each talked to Pepper on the phone and then made plans to meet with him and Dexter King in Memphis. Can you remember uh, anything of what was said when Jim met Dexter King? Nothing as far as great substance. Mainly, it was Dexter King trying to ascertain who was involved, what was it all about. Although Larson was representing Green and had grown up in Memphis, he really wasn't up on the complexities of the murder of Martin Luther King. So Larson was hearing a lot of stuff he hadn't heard before. It really kind of opened my eyes that there was more of a conspiracy than I thought there was. I think my idea probably developed fairly late in the game. The more I was involved in criminal defense work and got to know some of the cast of characters in Memphis and the Memphis Police Department, I got the feeling that there were some, well, we call them suits, the investigators, who were involved in either the timing, the surveillance, maybe the planning. I had prepped for my interview with Rusty Larson by reading Jim Green's manuscript, Blood and Dishonor. And since Green was no longer alive, I thought Larson and I might enter his story by way of the book and talk about the intrigue or the characters, like Buster or Jaybird, for whom crime was simply a way of life. I had some paragraphs that I intended to read to Larson as springboards into Jim Green's story. There was one character in particular who had a powerful position in the Missouri crime mosaic, yet to Jim Green, he seemed different from the others. His name was Paul, and one evening, Jim and Paul were alone together at the back of the pool hall. 
This is how Green describes the situation in his book. Paul reached inside his jacket and pulled out what looked like a wallet. He flipped it open, and all I could see were the letters FBI. Paul smiled at me and said, Don't worry, I'm your friend, not your enemy. He said everybody had to make a little money, even cops. I knew we had worked with local cops before, but I had never known of the feds being crooked. When I left, I drove straight back to Carruthersville. I told Jaybird what had happened, and he started laughing and said, I bet you shit your pants. I asked him what he would do if he saw that kind of badge. Jaybird said not to worry, because he needed us, and we needed him, and that I was never to say anything about his badge, or we would all end up being dead. I was eager to talk to Attorney Larson about this guy Paul, and Paul's boss, who he called Rochi. I thought the book would be our springboard, but I would be disappointed because although Larson had read the manuscript, it had been over 20 years ago, and little of it was still in his head. But there remained something important that I wanted from Larson, because if Jim Green's story is true, it points straight back to those who planned the murder of Dr. King. And in our phone conversations, I had found Rusty Larson to be smart, funny, and perceptive. And I wanted to apply those qualities to the question at hand. What did he think of Jim Green? Was Green the sort of man who would have gone to enormous trouble to invent an elaborate self-incriminating story? Why would he want to? For attention? Larson didn't think so. He was not the type that needed the attention. He made a good bit of money in his various topless operations and kind of enjoyed that type of life. So I, I never had the impression that he would have to make up some story just to elevate himself and appear to be something that he wasn't. If anything, Jim just really didn't give a flip. He was who he was, and if you like him, great, and if you don't like him, well, go screw yourself. Yeah, it was real simple with him. How simple? We'll let Jim Green tell you himself. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.
Can I give you a real incentive to lean into your decision to start working out and eating better? I'm Carl, co-founder of Body. That's B-O-D-I. And right now, if you sign up for a one-year subscription to Body, I want to make you an offer you can't refuse. I'll give you 65% off. Look, I know it's not easy to get fit and lose weight, especially if you're trying to figure it out by yourself. But we make it simple. Just follow a program for 20 to 30 minutes day by day and lose 5 to 10 pounds a month. We have over 120 programs that have been tested and proven to work, and almost 300,000 five-star reviews in the App Store to prove it. Body also has complete eating plans and thousands of healthy, delicious recipes. So stop guessing and start seeing results with Body, and I'll give you 65% off your annual membership right now so you save big on the app that CNN underscored named Best Fitness App. So don't wait. Sign up for a year of Body and save 65%. Just go to Body.com. That's Body with an I dot com. I was running moonshine This is Jim Green, talking on the phone in late 1998 to Bill Pepper in London. Again, because of the tape's quality, this statement will be read by a voice actor. I was running moonshine and stolen cars with the mob out of St. Louis. I was working for Buster Workman, Jim Michaels, and them boys out of Gaslight. We ran money from the vending machine companies back and forth, because my cousin was an owner of one of the companies. And I got tied in through them, and that's how I met the agent. I was told to go to this place in St. Louis with Butch and meet this guy. He told me, We work hand in hand. They help us, we help them. Back in the 60s, that was the way of life. The agent Jim Green speaks about is a guy named Paul who had FBI identification but worked closely with organized crime in the southern U.S. They help us, we help them, is what he was told. From this point forward, we're going to forego the voice actor and play the original tape. We highly recommend wearing headphones. While some of it may be difficult to hear, we feel it's important that you hear Jim Green make the statements himself. According to Green, Paul was the one who recruited him for the upcoming job in Memphis. I was picked. It's because when they showed me a picture of the 
Attorney Rusty Larson had said in his call to Pepper that Green had testified before the House Select Committee. So Pepper asked Green about that. See, I testified under executive session at the Assassination Committee. But my testimony was sealed. Nobody was allowed in that room when I testified to Stokes and them. But I only gave them like 20% of the story. You know, I only explained to them that I was hard to kill Ray, and I knew Ray didn't do the killing because I was looking at him when the shot was fired. And uh, so my testimony was never known and never will be known until... 2029. Okay, so you But does your name appear anywhere in the... Uh, well, I was subpoenaed. You were subpoenaed. Does your name appear anywhere in any of the volumes for any of the reporters? I don't know. They flew me to Washington. Yeah. The two, they had a man and a woman investigator come to me in Memphis. Right. I was working on an undercover job at the time. Right. And uh, they asked me would I come. I said, hey, there ain't no way I'll testify no confession. No way I'm going in front of television. Right. And uh, he said, well, we've got a way to put you in what they call executive session. Right. He said, that way only us, the prosecutor, and the committee will be the only people that hear your testimony. And then I agreed to it. Then I got a visit from some federal boys before I went. And they told me, said, some things you can't talk about. They didn't say what. Yeah, I think it was more of a warning than, than anything else, the way we worked. Because yeah. I've been involved in several other cases that I didn't think was right. But when you work for the government, your job, you do it, and you forget about it and go on. Was Walter Fontroy present at your testimony? The only one I remember is Stokes. Yeah, Walter is a... It was oh, a it made well, me mad. Yeah, well, Stokes is... Uh, I, we think Stokes was pretty much involved in... He was involved in something because he jumped on me feet first. And I looked at him and I said, Mr. Stokes, I don't even have to be here, you know. Pepper then questioned Green about the day the king was killed. We're the ones that met with the agent out on Lamar that night before and took the dry runs down through there, wherever they would be. We left the motel together and set up together about 3 o'clock. Were you in Jim's grill at all that day? Me and Butch was in it at one time. Yeah. Did you? Did you? Were you introduced to uh, Lloyd Jowers at any point? No. In fact, that's the first time I'd even been down there at that bar or in that area. No, I didn't know. I didn't know this guy. He wouldn't have been in the group I was in anyway. But your specific role in this whole operation was kill James Earl Ray. Kill Ray. That's what your role was. Right. So I had my eye on him from 3.30, 3.15, you know, on and off. Where I was at, I could see everything. I couldn't see the right, but I could see the bar. I could see straight down the street. Okay. You can remember, you can describe where you were in your location. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no problem at all. Green said he would do that when they met, but we'll do it here by reading from Blood and Dishonor, Green's unpublished account of his life and his role in the murder of Martin Luther King. We arrived in Memphis at 2 p.m. on the 3rd of April and got a room. Then we went out and visited a massage parlor. South Haven was full of parlors, and we knew a few of the owners, most of them women. Butch and I got up the next morning and left the motel around noon. Then we went downtown and stopped in a bar by the old King Cotton Hotel. 
While we sat there, Butch punched me and said, look at this. There was James Earl Ray coming in the door. I asked Butch if we should do him now, and he said no. We were told he couldn't die until after 6 p.m. In James Earl Ray's account of his coming into Memphis, given to attorney Lewis Garrison in 1994, he speaks of entering a bar a few blocks south of Jim's Grill, ordering a beer, and asking for directions. But he notices two guys who keep looking at him. This is what he said. I got on South Main Street, and uh, I went into the bar on the right side, and I asked him about this address, and he said, uh, there's a woman, she's standing bar, and she said that uh, it was down the street on the left uh, block or so. While I was in there, there were two individuals in there. I, uh, I thought maybe they were, uh, one appeared to be watching me. Now returning to Green's written account of that afternoon. At about three, Butch dropped me off and I climbed the ladder to the roof and posted myself with a clear view of 422 Main. I had been told to climb the Loomis building, but I changed that to a building about four doors down because the Loomis was right in front of the fire station and I thought it was too wide open. At about 3.30, Ray came out and walked up Main. In half a block, I lost sight of him. This would correspond with Ray's verified trip to the sporting goods store to buy, as he was told to do, a pair of binoculars. From his perch on the roof, Green saw Ray come and go a couple of times as six o'clock approached. Then at 5.55, I saw Ray emerge from the rooming house and get into the Mustang. Ray started his car and pulled away, and I waited for him to turn his car south, but he didn't. I thought he would circle the block and park and walk. This is what I was told, so I waited. Then some minutes later, I hear a sound like a backfire. Then I heard hollering and sirens starting to go off. As this was going on, I saw Butch come from the side of the building, and then Paul emerged from the rooming house, and I saw Paul lay down what looked like a coat on the sidewalk. Then they got into the car, made a U-turn, and came toward me. I hurried down, and as soon as I reached the car, Butch asked if I got Ray. I said no. His eyes lit up, and he said, Damn, we're in trouble. As Green explains in his book, the trouble they were in had to do with the fact that Ray was not intending to rob anybody as they were told, but he was there to take the blame for the murder of King, and that's why he needed to be dead. The whole idea was they had Ray's prints. They had him to rent the room. He was perfectly set up. If me or that police officer had killed him, case closed. No conspiracy. You just got a guy that hates blacks that kills a man the police see and they kill him. Bill Pepper ended his conversation with Jim Green by asking him why he had decided to come forward. Maybe I want to clear my conscience. I didn't have nothing to do with killing King. I didn't know he was going to be killed. But I was on the other side, and I put it together. Then when I started realizing everything, you know, I was like everybody else. I kept my mouth shut and went on with my life. So that was it. And sometime after this phone call, Bill Pepper arranged for a meeting in a room at the Memphis airport with Jim Green, Rusty Larson, and Dexter King. But I could not find a tape of that meeting either in Bill Pepper's collections or down at the King Center. So as far as the voice of Jim Green telling his story, we only have this short phone conversation with Pepper in London. I felt proud of myself for finding this tape, but when we had finished listening to it, I was surprised to learn that after his meeting with Jim Green and Dexter King in Memphis, 
Bill Pepper concluded that Jim Green's story was fabricated, that Green had been sent forward with a phony story for some reason. I believe Green was largely a disinformation agent, and I think we saw him that way. I think it didn't make sense in the total picture that I eventually uncovered. The only thing that gave Mr. Larson any credibility was the fact that he had a client who he was willing to put before us who was going to tell us a story about how his job was a designation to kill James Earl Ray. And that seemed to be par for the course. I mean, patsies are routinely disposed of because they may inadvertently or, or, or actually learn facts that uh, could be embarrassing to the people involved with the conspiracy. But that was about the only thing that Pepper found in Green's favor. This guy is creating a scenario that is supposed to give credibility to a story that he has. But he he's falls short in so many areas. And he, he, for example, could not have been watching Ray. He says at one point that he, he saw Ray at the time of the shooting. It's impossible. He couldn't have, he couldn't have done that. Because Ray was up at the, at, at the gas station at the time the shooting took place, not anywhere else. Pepper also questioned whether Green had met Ray in prison and whether he had really testified before the House Select Committee in 1978. Both of those stories had rung true to me. I then asked what kind of damage he could have done if Green had been let in the door. Pepper rolled his eyes. You remember what time we're talking about here, do you? You know what year we're talking about? We're talking about him surfacing at the time when the trial was about to take place, the civil trial. They didn't want that civil trial. The government didn't want it at all because of all the evidence that was laid out. So this was all a heated time when it would be very important to undercut or undermine or distract us from where we were going and what we were learning. So Jim Green appeared out of the mist when Bill Pepper was beginning to put together the civil trial that would feature all the evidence that had surfaced in the 30 years following King's murder. This was the very thing that the authorities had fought so hard against, a trial with witness testimony preserved in court records. But putting on the trial was no small thing. Seventy witnesses flying in and out of Memphis and put up in hotels, all to be scheduled, arranged, and somehow paid for. It was a tremendous undertaking. And because he had been fed disinformation in the past, Pepper was on the lookout for someone who might try to push their way onto the witness stand and then make a mockery of the whole proceeding. And to Bill Pepper, Jim Green looked like that guy. That said, I believe that Jim Green's story is true, at least most of it. In arriving at this conclusion, I had the advantage of 20 additional years to watch the story play out. I had talked to Rusty Larson, who was not only Jim Green's lawyer, but also his friend. And I had the extraordinary benefit of reading Jim Green's unpublished and unvarnished manuscript. So Bill Pepper and I, widely separated in time, came to different conclusions about Jim Green. We've talked about it, and I think it speaks to the health of our relationship that we can see pieces of this thing differently. Bill has spent over 40 years of his life successfully investigating this murder. I would not be here today except for the work he has done. As to my take, was Jim Green looking at Ray at the moment of the shooting as he said to Bill Pepper? No, 
I think he was giving the abbreviated form of the story. He intended to sit down with Pepper and Dexter King and lay it all out, as he did in his book, where he explains how James Ulrey emerged from the rooming house before 6 p.m., got into his car and drove away, just as Ray said he did, and the same said by witnesses Hendricks and Reed in their sworn statements to the FBI. Was Green telling the truth when he said he didn't know that King was to be killed? Maybe not, but it's a very understandable, almost forgivable lie to tell if it was a lie. Green got sucked into the plot, but none of it was his idea. He was just 21. But the biggest reason to believe that Green was not an agent of disinformation is that his story points an accusing finger back to the very same people that Bill Pepper was pointing to, including the FBI. But it's not a simple thumbs up or thumbs down with Jim Green. Because if you accept Green's story, you bring on stage a cast of characters that doesn't exactly fit with the ones already there. For example, Ray says that it was a man named Raoul who was up in the rooming house with him, sending him on errands and presumably placing the rifle with Ray's fingerprints out on the sidewalk, a rifle covered by a bedspread. But according to Jim Green, Paul was the one who appeared out of the rooming house and placed something on the street, something that from his distance looked like a coat. Is it possible that Paul was Raoul? Or if they were separate people at different times in his year-long journey to Memphis, did Ray, to protect himself, roll him into one? Perhaps along with others? To finish this puzzle, it would have helped if Ray had been more forthcoming with his story. But Ray was not the only one whose secrets make it difficult to construct a clean mosaic of this crime. Jim Green says he was called to testify before the House Select Committee in 1978. He believes that came about because in a foolish moment, he told Memphis reporter Kay Black that he knew that Ray had not killed King. Green said that two agents accompanied him to Washington, and before he testified, he was visited by the agent he knew as Paul and Paul's boss, who he knew as Rochi, a visit he interpreted as a warning. What did Green tell the committee? We don't know. Because like with a lot of other stuff that might shed light on this crime, it was kept secret. Not to be revealed until 60 years after the death of Martin Luther King. If King were murdered by James Earl Ray acting alone, what was the need for secrecy? If the purpose of the committee was to use their power to investigate this murder and reveal to the public their findings, why are there secret files and secret testimony? I believe that Jim Green's story is based in truth. And because of the official secrecy surrounding this murder and the secrecy surrounding his testimony, I feel obligated to present his story, even if it does not precisely fit with other stories that I also believe are based in truth. So that is what I have done. I'll close with a brief paragraph from Jim Green's unpublished account of his participation in this horrific crime. So why did I wait so long to tell what I know? Watch TV and see how they try to discredit the people who do come forward. Then I would ask myself, what about my family? What if they charge me, even though I didn't know King was to be killed? Why ruin my life over something no one will believe or jeopardize what I now have for a murder that took place over 30 years ago? And then I think that I am older now and want to clear the air before death. The first time I tried, the subcommittee didn't want the truth, but this time I will do it my way 
and if people don't believe me, at least I know that I told the truth, and the rest will be up to history. Next time on the MLK Tapes. It's how we were to look. I see the coming out of the bushes, and then I see the guy coming up. He didn't have no rifle, but I said, I know that he was the one that had to shoot you. How would you feel about undergoing hypnosis for the purpose of taking you back and putting you face to face with this man to see if you could remember his name? Did he tell you that he was the one who did the shooting? Straight up? Yeah, he told me about it. And there was three guys out there. It was Earl Clark, my brother, and, and the old man. And the old man didn't have guts to do it. He was too shaky and shit. If it was the brother that did it, and the brother convinced the younger brother that he's the one who did it, it would give him that type of insulation, that type of protection. There was a man that was assigned to get to King before anybody could run up from anywhere to get to King and make sure he was dead. It was already arranged that he was to go to St. Joseph Hospital down the street. He never was going to make it out of that emergency room alive. Thanks for listening to the MLK Tapes, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. This podcast is not specifically endorsed by the King family or the King estate. The MLK Tapes is written and hosted by Bill Klaber. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, with producers Trevor Young and Ben Kiebrick. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, with producers Jamie Albright and Meredith Stedman. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Cover art by Mr. Soul 216 with photography by Artemis Jenkins. Special thanks to Owen Rosenbaum and Grace Royer at UTA, the Nord Group, Beck Media and Marketing, Envision Business Management, and Station 16. If you have questions, you can visit our website, themlktapes.com. We posted photos and videos related to the podcast on our social media accounts. You can check them out at the MLK Tapes. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscored team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscored.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep.